Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. As I record this introduction, it's July 24th, 2020. And as I reflect upon the year, man, 2020 has shaped up to be a historic year by so many different accounts. Let's just look at the economy and the stock market for starters. Historically, over the last nine recessions going back to 1960, the average stock market decline was 33%. So 2020 lines up, it was about 34%. However, what makes 2020 very notable is what has historically taken 340 days for a stock market to find its bottom appears to have occurred at this point in time in just 23 days. And in the midst of all of this economic and financial uncertainty, political and social unrest seems to be amplifying. Noise is getting louder and louder. And that's not even taking into account that we have a presidential election coming up around the corner. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. However, uncertainty also equals opportunity, and so that's why I'm excited for today's conversation with Alan Colton. Alan is the founder and president of KCG. It's a professional consulting firm that specializes in strategic planning, mergers and acquisition, profit improvement, succession planning, executive coaching, and visioning for teams and partnerships. For 20 consecutive years, Accounting Today has recognized Alan as one of the industry's most influential professionals this year coming in the third most influential professional in public accounting. It's been said that the rate of change will never be as slow as it is today. So as a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, successful companies will be those that identify innovative opportunities, embrace change, and candidly are incredibly adaptable. And so that's why I'm excited to talk to Alan about the key ingredients to effective change management in our professional and personal lives. And so without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Alan Colton. Alan Colton, welcome to Success at Last. Appreciate you being here. Jared, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Alan, are you familiar with the term FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out? (laughs) Yes, my wife has it. She never wants to miss a party on a Saturday night. There you go. I'm not sure if it's a thing or not, but I kind of have FOMO of your LinkedIn profile. It's pretty impressive. If you can be envious of somebody else's LinkedIn profile, I might be envious of yours. A top 10 most recommended consultant for 17 years, a top 100 influential person in the profession for 20 years, and this year ranked third most influential professional in the industry. So well done. I'm sure that wasn't an accident. Yeah. You know, if you hang out long enough, sometimes you just get lucky. I think if you had said those things to my three kids, they would say, dad's the biggest nerd we've ever met. And when we have friends over, we lock them in the closet. So you got to balance that. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably a reason that none of our kids are on our testimonial videos, right? 
<laughs> you got it. My kids uh, fall in line there for sure. So you've gotten an opportunity to do a lot. And, and along the way, you know, you've accumulated 100,000 hours of professional service, kind of financial services, consulting and managerial consulting. So there's the old 10,000 hour rule to become an expert and you've done that 10 times over. So you didn't start here. So help us better understand kind of the career track of what led you to this moment today and the work that you're doing today. Yeah, and I'll try to be brief. And the 100,000 hours and the 10,000, you're right on both. Sometimes people are just slow learners. We probably 100,000 to figure out what others did in 10,000. But I never set out to be an accountant, which was the trade that I got coming out of college. You know, if you go back in time to the 80s, parents would say to their kids, you're not athletic enough to play professional sports. We hope you could be a doctor or a lawyer. And they quickly found out I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. I'm probably shrewd enough to be a lawyer, but they said, if you become an accountant, you'll always have a job. Hated accounting, loved marketing, was a dual major coming out of Wisconsin and was fortunate enough that I found my direction early on. Six months into public accounting, I was summoned into the managing partner's office. Thought I was doing a great job. I thought I was going to get promoted from staff to senior or supervisor. He took the partnership agreement out, threw it across the desk at me and said, you ought to read paragraph eight. I looked at paragraph eight and it talked about mandatory retirement at age 65. I said, I think you got the wrong paragraph here. He said, no, it's the right one. You said, how long will it take for you to get from staff to senior? And based on our age 65 mandatory retirement, I don't think there's enough time for you to make it. He said, let me be more specific. You're the worst accountant I've ever seen. He says, I've got bad news and good news. He says, the bad news is you're fired. We can't get enough malpractice insurance to cover you. He said, the good news is come back on Monday and we're going to rehire you as our firm's first. And he stopped and he said, give me the weekend to figure it out and I'll tell you on Monday. <laughs> so he must have seen something non-accounting in me. Ironically, I became the assistant to the CEO and it elevated a track of learning about how to run a business at an early age. And I always say, had I not pursued a career in public accounting, that never would have happened. So. What's the old adage in business? Sometimes luck is just falls in your lap. Yeah, I think there's something else. I don't know who said it, but the harder I try, the luckier I get, you know? <laughs> Words of wisdom, my friend. Absolutely. That's pretty incredible, I guess, to see what wasn't right with you, but to also see the potential in you. Often, you know, you hear Jim Collins talk about getting the right people on the bus, but it's not only just the right people on the bus, but the right seats on the bus. I think that's fascinating that you went from an accounting career track to seeing the potential in you to serve in a different position, but on the same team. I don't yeah, know, yeah. pretty unconventional, certainly within the industry. Yeah. You know, the old adage sometimes in life, sometimes in business, you have to fail a lot of times to finally get to the right time. And, you know, my message to whoever I meet with is if you haven't failed, you're not in the game. And, you know, what is your next failure going to be? Because if you're not failing, you're not growing professionally. You know, when I'm talking to professionals, I'm asking them every year, you know, what's your goals for the next year? What are you going to do to be worth more to your clients? What are you going to do to justify a higher rate? What are you going to do to be worth more to your clients? And I find that a lot of people just get set in their old ways. And it's almost like they've learned a skill and they just think they can keep milking it and repeating it. And unfortunately, if you keep doing that, you become a commodity. There's always someone out there looking to grow and do more and learn more. And you know that's why the commitment to professional learning 
and developing. You're never at the finish line. There's always something you don't know. So just in your last couple of statements, I'm picking up that you're a lifelong learner and that you position failure not as failure, but as learning. And so I guess one of the questions that I've enjoyed asking people over the years is tell me about your favorite failure. Do you have a favorite professional failure of something that jumps out that the byproduct was learning that you redeem on a daily basis today or pass along kind of as the form of tuition that you paid via the real world? Yeah, well, you've now heard about my lack of accounting skills and where I really failed there. If you heard me getting introduced at the University of Wisconsin or UWM at their career days or talking to their business school people, you'd, you'd hear a story that I hold the University of Wisconsin record for most times failing an accounting class. Seven times, seven times. So intro accounting, intermediate accounting, tax accounting, cost accounting, advanced cost accounting. And they take great pride when they bring me on the stage to say that that record has never, will never be broke ever again. But as if that wasn't bad enough, I flunked the CPA exam, not once, not twice, but three times. Nailed it on the fourth. And someone once said to me, you had 11 failures slap you in the face. Why did you keep going? Why did you keep doing this? Maybe you weren't that good at it. And, you know, it's an inner belief that no matter what, those are sort of the mantra words that I use, no matter what, if you set a goal and you believe in it, don't let those obstacles get in your face. So I'm either the dumbest person in the world or the most persistent person in the world, but I'm not going to take time to figure that one out. (laughs) I think that's a really encouraging story and probably a story that most people don't hear as much as they should. You know, I think it's easy to sit back and look at somebody else after the fact, and to see where they've ended up, but not understand the adversity and the persistence that were required or that preceded where they are today. Were you supported by other people? Where did that motivation come from? Like stick-to-itiveness. Angela Duckworth talks about grit in her research and defines it as the combination of passion and persistence. So the persistence to overcome 11 you know, temporary failures and stick with it Was that something that came from your parents? Was it innate, something inside of you, external sources of encouragement? Where did that come from? Jerry, what a great question. Yeah, the magical person in my world was my mom. And my mom had those 10 magical words. And I went like this, Alan, you can do it. I know you can. And the fact that somebody believed in me through all that adversity, I always said to myself, she must see something in me that I don't see in me. And I always wonder if I didn't have that, where would I have checked out? Because one thing is for sure, if you don't have somebody behind you, you would have checked out. Interestingly, fast forward after 25 years of telling that story, I was at an accounting conference last year and somebody raised their hand and said, hey, Alan, I don't know if anybody ever told you this, but those 10 magical words that your mom told you, they're actually only nine. You should check the math. So, (laughs) but yeah, that's what it's all about. It's never giving up no matter what, but you nailed it, Jared. You have to have somebody believing in you, pushing you in those moments of doubt. So I guess then to keep this real free flowing, we're going to just go to a completely different topic that's based upon what we're just talking about. So You've had the opportunity to work with, I think, two-thirds of the top 200 accounting firms in the country, in addition to banks and financial services industry you know, leaders and law firms and an incredible breadth of experiences and seeing different leaders lead. I presume that the encourager that your mother was 
to you is a common trait amongst the leaders that lead well within these organizations that you think do it well. So I guess, how does that role of encourager show up within the leaders that you've had the opportunity of interacting with over the years? Yeah, you know, leadership isn't for everyone. You always hear the statement, leaders aren't made, they're born. There's some truth in that, just like salespeople aren't made, they're born, but the reality is many of them are made. And, you know, I think what you're really getting to is the characteristics of a great leader. You know, the first one is trust. If those around you don't trust you, not a prayer. It's not going to work well. And even if you get in there, you're going to spend too much time having to convince those that don't believe in you. The second is just basic respect. Do I respect that leader as a business person? Do they make you know, good decisions? Do they understand the business? Do they understand people? Number three is being a great communicator. You know, I remember my job I had in high school was shining shoes for $3 and 65 cents a shoe or a pair of shoes. And I remember a whole summer sitting in a basement shining shoes at a health club. And I was shining the shoes of the national partner at Arthur Anderson, you know, one of the big accounting firms back when. And I got up the courage to say to him, I said, Steve, I'm thinking of pursuing a career in public accounting. And what advice might you have for me? And interestingly, very smart person, but not a great tipper. And I'll never forget, he got up at the end of the shoe shine. Again, did not give me a tip, started walking away. And I asked him that question. He turned around and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice, kid. Number one, if you want to pursue a career in public accounting or in a professional services firm, it's all about communication skills. Everybody is technical. Everybody can do debits and credits. But if you can communicate, you're going to fly to the top. And I remember hearing that and saying, oh, my gosh, I just shined this guy's shoes for an entire summer for $3.65, and that's all he's got to say to me. And then he kept walking, and it occurred to me, he said he had two pieces of advice. And I stopped him, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, I thought you had two pieces of advice. He said, oh, yeah. The other one is, I would strongly urge you to pursue a career in public accounting because as a shoeshine boy, you suck. And he walked away. <laughs> so he was a straight shooter in yeah. terms of his communication <laughs> strategy. <laughs> So trustworthy, the respect of the people, great communicator. But in the words of Jack Welsh, maybe the most important one is the ability to make tough decisions. I remember reading a book by Jack Welsh called Jack, and he said that in his surveys of professional financial services firms, the best of the best of the best decision makers get it right. Are you ready for this? 660% of the time. I read that and said, you know, that's got to be a typo because if you're a baseball player, a 600 batting average is great. But in business, to be just a little more right than wrong, that's not so good. I'll bet that's a typo. And then I read the next paragraph and you know what he said? He said, the worst decision makers, bat 900, darn near perfect. But he said, the problem is they can't make a bloody decision if their life depends on it because they're always trying to get consensus and they take the time to sort of, you know, massage the decision. And by the time they make the decision, the competition has already passed them by. And, you know, his comment was, if you can make a lot of tough decisions, almost built for speed, you're going to soar in the leadership circles. So I think you put all that together with the obvious ribbon being humble, uh, leaving your echo, your uh, ego at the door. The best analogy or commentary I've ever heard on leadership, great leaders, great managers, they get results 
through others. And if you can get people to a place that they can't get on their own, then you're pretty good. That's the magical, I think, piece of great leadership and management. Who is the best leader that you've had the opportunity to work under? Great question. I would go back to probably the one that mentored me a lot in my developmental years, Erwin Friedman. He was the founder of what was then the 13th largest accounting firm in the country. Think Mike Ditka on one hand, but think the caring and nurturing of some other great leader. He was all about what's your unique self? What are you great at? What aren't you great at? And let's develop goals programs and hold you accountable. Uh, I used to call it Tuesdays with Irwin, and it was like going for a root canal. Because in that meeting, he wasn't going to look at the things I accomplished. He was going to look at the things I didn't accomplish. But better than that was going to have an action plan to hold me accountable and help me get through those speed bumps or obstacles of things I couldn't do. Absolutely. Did you ever have the opportunity to tell him the role that he was playing in your life or the mentor that he had become in your life? Great question, Jared. I did. I rewarded him by having him be my best man at my wedding. It also helped when you have four roommates who all think they should be your best man. Also. Yeah, tiebreaker. Yeah. Tiebreaker. I got up there and said, nobody's had more influence on my life for the past decade than, than this individual. So yeah. And he's think, still alive today. We have breakfast twice a year. He's well into his 80s. And you know, the best compliment I could give him is when I'm consulting with a firm and I get stuck. I always say to myself, what would Irwin do right now? What would he say? And it's almost like he's there, you know, embedded in me with a microchip to help me navigate those waters. That's awesome. I've observed that successful leaders seem to have mentors that are pouring into them. They have people that they're pacing life with, peers that push them as a peer to get better and can interact with them as a peer, but then are from an early age, even when they're not even close to the end of their journey, are generously investing in the lives of other people. And so there's that reaching down, reaching to the side and reaching up. And it seems to create a good equilibrium as a leader of giving, taking and pacing along the way. So that's, that's awesome. Recently had an acquaintance pass away with an accident unexpectedly. And it's just yet another reminder of just the opportunity, the gift that it is to go tell somebody the role that they play in your life. You know, hopefully you get the opportunity, but certainly you don't want to take it for granted. So that's awesome that he got to be your best man and hear the role that he'd played in your life. You know, you know, Jared, a part of life and business where you're trying to go is never forgetting where you've been. And, yeah. and always thank those people that helped you. But you, you bring up a good point. You know, we talk about leadership, but you also have to have the willingness to be led. And, you know, we call it nagging rights. I think there's three kinds of players or performers, as we call them, in business circles I come across. I think there's the one that's content and is sort of in cruise control. You know, I always say, look at the tree of life. Picture that big oak tree. I think there's a big population of people that stop growing professionally. They just want to continue to milk what it is they've done for many, many years. I think there's a second level. I call them the climber. And I think the climber is the one that's never satisfied. They're always trying to think, how can I be worth more to the organization? How can I be worth more to my client or customer? And every year they immerse themselves in new skills, new technologies, new ways to build relationships. And I think there's a third one, and we call it the crazy. They climb that proverbial tree. And what do they do when they get to the top? They jump to another tree because they're never satisfied. And those kind of leaders, I see them in organizations. A lot of times when they retire or leave, the crazy factor or the X factor, as we call it, is gone from the company. And eventually the company becomes very average. 
because yeah. there's no one there's no one person or group or culture that's prodding towards continued greatness. I like that. So the crazies, the climbers, and the content. Yeah. Alan, I guess in your experience, does a healthy organization have a mixture of both? Yeah, it's like the debt to equity ratio. You want to have a lot more equity in your organization than debt. And it's not to suggest that content or cruisers are debt. But when the majority of the organization just wants to be average, what happens to the overachievers is one of two things. They either downgrade and they sort of take their foot off the accelerator or they get so frustrated that they leave the organization. And I find part of what I do for a living is going into organizations and sort of letting firms know who the crazies are, who the climbers are, and who the contents are. And it's amazing. It can flip in as quick as three or four years. You can go from this great dynamic organization with a lot of crazies and climbers to literally having some people leave and some retire to all of a sudden having a content organization. It's a cancer, not to use another C word, but it's a cancer. And when it gets into your organization, it is so hard to reverse. Yeah, no momentum. It's one of those things that it exists in sports. We've all been at the game where there's momentum. It's this invisible, intangible thing that everyone knows is there, but it certainly shows up in business as well. I guess similar to kind of what you were just talking about, until you and I had spoken, I hadn't encountered the content climbers crazies concept. And it made sense to me. It kind of reminded me a little bit of a book I read last year. I was trying to get better in my communication. It was a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It was a great book in terms of learning how to be radically candid, but it's kind of the intersection of caring personally and challenging directly. And it sounds like some of the people that have been most influential in your life, they cared about you personally, but there was also they challenged you directly. So I thought that was a great framework in terms of communication. But I brought that up in the first place just because she was talking about her experience of working at Google versus working at Apple. And Apple had actually started to talk about people in the terms of superstars and rock stars. And it was a repositioning because Apple realized you can't have all superstars, people that are just always looking for what's next and always climbing and not ever looking to kind of grow roots. And they found value in the stability of people that didn't maybe necessarily have the most aggressive career track. And so they deemed them rock stars to emulate or kind of talk about the stability that comes from somebody that's willing to go stay in the same spot and become world-class in something that's kind of a foundation upon which then you can shoot the superstars off and allow them to create the change that organization needs to. So that there's a role and a value to both of them. And I thought that was interesting to take it slightly different. I would identify more as a crazy or I'd identify as a superstar, but it allowed me to see the value of stability that you can't just have 100% turnover change within roles and responsibilities. And so it was intuitive or insightful and kind of very complimentary of what you were sharing with us about the climbers, the crazies, and the content. Yeah. Well, you know, Jared, it's interesting of all the things I remembered from the call we had last week, which was our first time we connected, I couldn't help but probe, you know, I don't get to meet many people in public accounting that had success in professional sports. And when I asked you the question about coaching that you had had, and I can't use some of the four-letter words you used to describe, but you talked about (laughs) how they, you know, kicked the whatever out of you, but you always knew where they stood. And it almost felt to me like when they stopped pushing you as hard as they were pushing you to be successful, they've given up on you. And I think a great leader, you know, coming back to this theme of what defines great leaders, it's the school of tough love. 
It's always being there, but never pulling any punches and having an agreement. We call it these nagging rights to continue to push you until you say no. And, you know, I know you're talking and interviewing me, but the question that I, and I'm sure a lot of listeners was to excel to the level that you did in college football, you must have had those kind of people throughout your life pushing you and pushing you. And somewhere along the line, I think you gave them the authority to continue to do that. Yeah, absolutely. People will ask, who's your head coach? So the coach that recruited me was Mike Bellotti. He was actually the position coach as well. So he was our head coach, but we didn't have a kicking coach, so to speak. So Mike Bellotti was actually the kicking coach. So he was also my position coach as well. And they ask, what kind of a guy is he? And he's a wonderful man. I have no complaints of Coach Bilotti, but I describe him as my first boss. You know, my high school coach kind of felt a little bit like it was a lot more touchy-feely and Mike Bilotti was my first boss. And I remember saying no matter what I did, he always expected more. And so it was an interesting experience. First time I hit a 50 plus yard field goal, I came to the sidelines delighted. And the first thing out of his mouth was that was too low. I was like, too low, it went through the pipes. That's three points. And he's like, well, it worked this time. I know that you can do better. And so next time it needs. And so he was perpetually getting more out of me. He was able to get more out of me than I probably would have been able to get out of myself. And I guess I gave him permission because I knew that he was equally yoked. He wanted the same thing that I did. He wanted me to be successful and maximize my potential or my capabilities of contributing to the team wins. And so even though it was at times difficult to hear what he had to say, I trusted him. I trusted his character. I trusted his competency. And he was very predictable. There was a level of predictive trust that was in there as well. So he was a wonderful leader and he delegated to his position coaches and his coordinators well. And when I think of great leadership, it's so easy to kind of pull from those experiences on the field. So for me, athletics was a great training ground for some of the leadership principles that have helped me in my career so far. Absolutely. Yeah. So public accounting firms are often known to extract the actionable insight from the numbers. What stories is your business telling you from the numbers and kind of here are the levers that we can pull to influence profitability or cash flow or protect margins? But I wanted to ask you a different question. So after being in the industry for as many years as you have and working in all these different companies, I guess what are some of the things that are most important for a leader to be looking at that they might not be able to determine from their financial statement. What's critical to a business's long-term success that one couldn't find in the income statement? If you think about professional financial service firms, if I can use those, the assets, the, the people go up and down the elevators all day long. And yeah. it's a pretty simple business. If you think about it, great people produce great clients, which produce great fees, which allow us to pay above market rates and make the necessary investments in our business. It's a pretty simple business model. But what gets taken for granted too many times is the pressure for short-term financial results. You know, a lot of professional service firms, it's all about what the average partner income is. And I've found over the years that that's the most meaningless metric one should look at. What matters is in the war on talent, are we continuing to recruit at all levels that matter? People with leadership, rainmaking, technical, and client handling skills because every decade we have to replace those parts. No different than a football team. We've got all these different positions and we need to be recruiting that kind of talent in. I see a lot of firms that fail dramatically, partially because they haven't built that employer of choice or that best place to work environment uh, that the kids today want to become a part of. 
but it's not just getting them in the door. It's what to do once they're in the door. And it's all the things we're talking about, goals, having a program of where they want to get in their professional career and being the enabler to help them to achieve that and developing future leaders, future stars throughout the way. The other piece, which we don't measure anywhere close enough, is the level of client satisfaction and the wow factor. You know, we could call that a net promoter score. We could call that how many referrals clients give. But, you know, another three C's we always use, we call the customer, the client, and the cheerleader. Customer is someone that buys from you. You don't have much of a relationship. And every couple of years, if your price goes up, they leave. There's no brand loyalty to the organization. We have been so busy being busy, we haven't developed the customer to the next level, which is what we call the client. Client buys multiple things from you. They refer others into you and they have a great relationship and they understand you get what you pay for. They may pay a lot in the way of fees, but they get value. But the ultimate is not the customer. It's not the client. It's the third level. It's the cheerleader. They're the ones that in the market, in the community, sell for you. They recruit talent. They recruit other clients to join. It's the most powerful person you can have. And I find with professionals that they're so busy being busy that they don't take the time to convert great potential customers into clients and great clients into cheerleaders. When I do my surveys of the best of the best of the best, the highest performers in professional financial services firms, they talk about all being about the cheerleaders. How many cheerleaders do you have in the market out there selling for you? And I find that most people just don't take the time to invest in clients to convert them into cheerleaders. Those are the non-financial statement things that I typically look for when I'm coaching partners on how to get better, how to be worth more. That's super helpful. I love the visual of your greatest asset coming up and going down the elevator each and every day. At times, I've actually even used sport as a metaphor for business because if you think about sport, you know, everyone's playing by the same set of rules. So what often differentiates one team from another is your people, your culture, and your execution. And so like, if you can win in recruiting, right? If you start college football team, in order to win on Saturdays, you have to win in recruiting, right? And winning on Saturdays improves your recruiting and then your recruiting improves, you win more on Saturday. So it's kind of a productive prosperity cycle that occurs. It's both and. So I guess as you're kind of thinking about how do we grow our business, it's thinking about what are the right types of investments that one should make in a business. There's different ways to approach businesses. The clients that we work with, some it's about maximizing the income that they receive, you know, maximizing the income statement, while others are more oriented towards the balance sheet. How do I create wealth and health for the business? I've heard you describe that as asset building versus asset milking. I guess, what's a good way to think about the right life or the right type of investment in the business and philosophically how one should approach it and the consequences of those decisions? And the asset milking building term I heard from a now retired consultant, David Maester, who was a former Harvard Business School professor and wrote many books on professional service firms. And he would offer up that a asset builder is really planting seeds today for a better tomorrow. And you know what that's code for is whatever the profitability is at the end of the year, the first cut can't go to the partners. The first cut has to go to the investment we're going to make in technology, in training, in product development, in leadership development, in all the things that matter. And then we're going to pay the partner. 
an asset milking firm would want nothing to do with that. They'd say, ah, that's not that important. Let's take all the profits out for ourselves. And the asset milking firm, the history books show us decade after decade after decade, eventually that Broadway play comes to an end because what's happened is the level of talent, training, technology, delivery of services becomes marginalized, almost commoditized. Whereas the one that's building today, investing today for a better tomorrow, the asset builder is soaring through the roof and is in it for the long term. Awesome. So I've heard you liken your managerial consulting practice to the old TV show, Let's Make a Deal, you know, door one, door two, door three. So I guess walk me through, because I like the simplicity of that metaphor. How has your consulting practice been like, Let's Make a Deal? <laughs> and, and it tells me that you're even young enough that you remember that show and Monty Hall with door number one, two, and three. So door number one is like the movie Groundhog Day, if you remember with Bill Murray. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's doing the same thing over and over. And eventually what happens is what you do gets marginalized. It gets commoditized. Competition not only catches you, they pass you. And to me, door number one is the poster child for being average. And average is not a good place to be because it's really not a sustainable place. Door number two is what is it going to take to climb the hill? How will we climb the mountain and be better in the future than we are today? What are the strategic investments we're going to need to make that maybe we're not making? Bottom line is what tough decisions do we as shareholders or stakeholders have to make to get to the next level of growth and profitability? And the old adage is what got us to the dance won't get us to the next level of growth or profitability. To make that happen, you've got to have the shareholders or stakeholders all on the same page, or you've got to have a majority that say, this is where we're going. You can't do that. The default is we end up in door one, and door one is not a great place to be, especially for your higher performers. What I find, however, is sometimes in door number two, the best intentions are that's where we want to go. We want to create the business or firm of the future. But unfortunately, something has happened. There's been a casualty along the way that won't allow it. The casualty can be because the partners aren't on the same page. We can't reach a consensus about strategic investments or leadership or what our culture should be or the balance between making money today and making money in the future. Bottom line is we agree to disagree. And the byproduct of that is what we call door three. And door three is businesses are created to be built. And either from a succession standpoint, passed on to the next generation, or they're sold or merged up. So door number three for us is merging with a larger organization. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. So you've had the opportunity then to see a lot of M&A throughout those 100,000 hours of consulting. What makes for a good deal versus a tough deal? I mean, some you read often some of these acquisitions go better than expected, many go different than expected. I guess, are there any common denominators around how to, to experience an M&A event and have it live up to its potential? Yeah, good question, Jared. I could sum it up in two words, Monday morning. <laughs> and <laughs> what I mean by Monday morning is let's pretend the deal has happened already and let's try to extrapolate what's going to happen once we're together before we even get married. Uh, all too often, I find in the courting process, everybody's got their best salespeople 
(laughs) trying to make a deal. And you forget that the merger acquisition doesn't start till the first official day. So it's looking into the future. It's putting on the table the sacred cows, the tough decisions, the changes that are going to be painful. I find a great thing to say when if I'm an acquirer is the first year is not going to be good. It's maybe going to be like the first year of marriage. <laughs> and you're going to have to conform. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to line up in a way that's different. Here's the things that you're going to experience. I find oftentimes in bad mergers, they haven't dealt with the tough stuff up front. I also find sometimes that, you know, they want to have a honeymoon clause where after six months or a year, if they're not happy, they can go back to where they were before. And I say, that's insanity. And they go, why? I go, because. Could you imagine in the real world? Could you imagine if every marriage that took place in America had a honeymoon clause? And it said after six months, if either side isn't happy, do you have any idea what the divorce rate would be? Uh, Worse than it already is. (laughs) Yeah. So what you have to understand is the quicker we come together and act like business partners and aren't all about getting the better of the other, but understanding each one's wants and needs and making a deal that's fair and sustainable and will stand the test of time. Unfortunately, I, and I have to say this sometimes to what I call the newbies, the ones that haven't done many deals in the past, to be successful in the world of M&A, you have to have a lot of arrows in your back. You have to have made, unfortunately, sometimes some wrong decisions to learn from them. And almost it's like getting calloused and understanding when you're sitting in a meeting and you're testing for culture, not rationalizing something. Yeah. You know, I get people that spend a year or two on a deal and they're in the bottom of the ninth or the fourth quarter and there's something bothering them and they want to look the other way because of the time they've invested in it. And my message to them, no, that's a neon light going off saying, don't do it. And what I have to say sometimes is sometimes in M&A, the best deals are the ones you don't do. Let someone else do it and deal with, you know, what's about to happen. I love that. It's really interesting to unpack that. So you're talking about sometimes your no is more important than your yes. It makes me think of Warren Buffett. You know, he talks a lot more about his wealth coming from swinging at the right pitches versus the number of swings. I think that there's something insightful there in terms of what you're just talking about, the importance of a no and how there's opportunities there. Awesome. Well, so we could talk for another couple of hours, but in the spirit of managing time effectively, we're going to end it on a note. I want you to freestyle on the importance of adaptability today as a professional to experience success in an ever-changing world. I've heard you talk about the importance of adaptability, but I just wanted to kind of tee that up because it seems like overnight, who would have ever anticipated 2020 looking like it did, looking like it has so far, and we're only like halfway through it. So it seems as though adaptability is more important than ever. And that phrase is on my mind only because I heard you mention it last week. So what role does adaptability play in the success one experiences individually or as an organization, organizationally? I'll give you a story on adaptability. And yes, I think if I was picking a team on the playground or was picking a team in professional financial services firms, there's a certain minimum skill set that one has to have. But beyond that, adaptability is what I think is the most important because the only thing for sure when it comes to change is that it's going to happen with or without us. You're too young, Jared, but when I was a kid, I remember a baseball player named Lou Brock. 
you may have read about him in, yeah. in books and things like that. And Lou used to tell a story. I remember he was on a talk show. I can't remember which one it was, but the host asked him a question. They said, what is the record that you're most proud of in Major League Baseball? And the number of bases that he had stole when he was with the St. Louis Cardinals. At one time, he had the Major League record. But the announcer went on to ask him a second question, and it was, what is the record that or, or feat that you're the most unhappy about? And, you know, us baseball buffs and, you know, trivia people knew the answer to that. Of course, it was he had also had the record for the most number of times thrown out trying to steal. And when he answered the question, he sort of shocked all of us because he said, no, that wasn't his biggest disappointment. His biggest disappointment was the number of times he was on first base and the third base coach had the steal sign on and he didn't go. And I think every day in our professional lives, we're on first base. That third base coach has the steal sign on and call it adaptability. We're not budging and we're not budging maybe because of fear of failure. So when I talked about adaptability, implicit in that is you got to get by this thing called fear of failure. You've got to let it go and you've got to be willing to be adaptable to try something new. Awesome. Alan, that's when you drop the mic. Boom. You just walk <laughs> off stage. We're not going to plus that at all. So, Alan, thank you so much for your time, energy, effort in today's conversation. I'm positive our community is going to walk away with some gems. So, thanks so much. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye.